For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Yas here, and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask, and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends, and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Jess, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Philip O'Callaghan. How you doing, Phil? Yeah, good. Um, I think uh, people need to know the kind of efforts we had to go technologically to get this podcast up and running. So we, we tried two or three times, two different days, and we finally got it. Finally got in. I'm I'm very very confident it's going to be a phenomenal one as well. Um, Phil, before we get into that though, uh, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, or we'll spin it off from there. Um, so I'm Philip. I'm living in Cork in Ireland. Um, I'm a PE teacher by day, so that's kind of my day job, and then um, I do a bit of co tennis coaching. So like tennis is my the sport that I kind of focused on from maybe 16 onwards. I used to play a lot of other sports when I was younger. And then I studied to become a PE teacher. And I suppose during that time, um, I kind of developed a big interest in coaching and how maybe like one of the big things that I kind of, or like kind of got interested in was skill acquisition and how that can be used to kind of enhance our coaching practice. So, um around february last year um i kind of started posting on twitter um i had done a small bit during kind of the first summer of lockdown in 2020 but i i kind of i had a few things on instagram but i didn't really it was just kind of general coaching stuff but um this year i kind of started by kind of posting um like reviews of some of the skill acquisition research and then um that kind of evolved into I tried to 
post kind of once or twice a day just kind of little tips and then do a tread on a friday about a research paper and i'm going to try post another tread now you like during the week during the summer holidays i was good for it but since i've been back in school i've been kind of trying to balance it so i also kind of chose to start a newsletter um just when i was back to school so it was kind of <laughs> very full-on so um i'm just kind of getting into the how to kind of balance everything at the moment but i'm getting the hang of it are you still on mute guys apologies um yeah <laughs> i'm sure you'll get around to around to balancing it out eventually because um it can be challenging but let, let's 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 dive straight into that you know um reason why i've got you on it because i wanted to discuss skill acquisition um your thoughts on it some of your opinions you know you got you got you know like you said you're constantly um posting about it um and some interesting stuff comes out from it i guess Maybe just start off with, because you know, I'm conscious that not everyone listening to this right now may know exactly what skill acquisition is. Uh, maybe just start off by, you know, giving us a brief breakdown on on that from your perspective. Yeah, so I'd probably um, maybe preempt it with like, I'm not, I wouldn't be a skill acquisition research or like researcher or an, an expert, but um, like I have a big interest in it. And like I've spent a lot of time over the last few years kind of looking into it and like applying it into my own coaching so I suppose that's where I'm coming from I'm not like uh I haven't studied years in college on it but I have a big interest in it so um basically uh skill acquisition so there's I suppose what it looks at like straight away is like how people are acquiring skills and there's kind of two kind of dominant kind of theories in skill acquisition about how skills are acquired so one was kind of the information processing model kind of which i suppose the analogy is like kind of skills are kind of something that's kind of stored in the brain so it's kind of like computers um things are kind of repeated so that it kind of gets into muscle memory and then you just reproduce that and then the other side which um other kind of view is um ecological dynamics which is um what that focuses on how is like the improvement of the fit between an individual and the environment so like as a as players kind of gain expertise it's how they kind of interact with the information and what's going on in the environment and the skill isn't really stored in the head it's something that kind of emerges due to the kind of interactions between the different um what are called like constraints just just on that then let's talk about that. you know where, where did your interests first come from because obviously you know you said your sport is predominantly tennis. Um, talk us through what you know. What are the traditional kind of methods of developing um, athletes in tennis? Because you know my sport is in you know football. Um, traditionally, we look at a lot about the technical aspects, really developing a certain strong foundation of technical um, components, if you like, before we start to develop on some of the maybe the ecological dynamics piece, which are the decision making and, and you know the, the perception action elements to to the, to the to that development process if you like yeah so like with tennis or where my kind of original interest came from i suppose was um i don't know if you've ever read or heard of the book the inner game of tennis um it's by um oh what's his name? i can't remember the guy's name or oh, i have it here uh timothy galway and one of the things that he was talking about was how like um 
the like to, when you're playing at your best, you're kind of you're not focusing on your own actions. You're kind of focusing on the outcomes. And then I was I went to this um I suppose guest lecture. Um, you might have heard of it, Nick Winkleman. Yeah, so he he has a lot of stuff about kind of he has a book called The Language of Coaching, and one of the some of the stuff he was talking about in the lecture was like focus of attention. So like external versus internal focus of attention. So um from there from then I kind of got a like Nick gave a book recommendation it was called like skill acquisition in sports so I bought that book straight away um I started reading it and um then I came across kind of a lot of stuff on Twitter and kind of podcasts like the perception action podcast Rob Gray he I think he just released a series on the constraints led approach and then from there kind of went down a rabbit hole but um then with like my my own sport tennis um tennis is probably one of the most technique based instructionally led um sports in the world so like if you go to any the majority of tennis lessons are focusing on developing the perfect technique or kind of building repetitions so it's actually not a sport that that's very um i suppose has a it has a steepest like it has a kind of cultural or social cultural kind of history of being very kind of technique focused and repetition based so um the way i'd view tennis coaching then would kind of nearly would be the opposite of that so um it i suppose it's not an easy sport to kind of get the ideas cr- across in I, th- I think obviously it's a little bit more challenging because obviously with tennis it being an individual sport it's heavily dependent on not just the technical aspects of the player themselves, obviously being able to perform the technique, but actually the repetition of being able to get that back from the the opposition, if you like, um, which is obviously very much different to maybe like a team sport, like a, like football, for instance, where there's so many different factors that influence that. Whereas I guess te- 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 tennis, in some ways, because it is an individual sport, it's probably a little bit more. Would you say it's maybe a bit more easier to isolate things, and by nature, because it's easier to isolate it, you get. You can be led astray by the by the the technical improvements, which maybe mislead you to understand, to maybe thinking that this is you know really big development uh, pieces here. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I suppose if you compare tennis to co- tennis coaching versus like football coaching, like there's pros and like there's some things that are easier with the football, some things that are easier with the tennis. So like. With the tennis, it's actually quite like you can individualize the sessions a bit more because you don't have to do like you could you generally you'd have about if you were coaching and maybe have six to eight in a group and you can kind of individualize it a bit more. Whereas like then, like say if I'm in a P class, it's much harder to individualize it. So like it would be the same for soccer coaching if you have a big panel or a big squad. Um, I suppose with the like with the tennis it like a lot of the lessons and stuff you see like one-on-one lessons and they'd be like kind of just hand feeding the balls or they'd be feeding from a basket and they'd be hitting into an empty court and like i'd be tearing out my hair and like why don't you just like why don't you have or there could be two people on the same side of the net hitting to an empty court and like the players that you have at your disposal are nearly your like biggest asset as a coach because they can kind of they can provide problems for the players. You can kind of create different games with them. So it kind of it's frustrating when you see the kind of lines of players on a tennis court hitting into 
an empty court on the other side and I, there's kind of things like that in soccer as well like when you're or football when you're dribbling around cones or when you're shooting into empty goals and things like that and then there's five or six players standing behind that could be giving them like crucial bits of information and um like it's really it's kind of important that the coaches do use the kind of resources they have and like the other players are big resources for them i think you're spot on but you know i think you know and obviously your your sport is obviously tennis you know mine's football and i'm i'm i'm, I'm what I'm really going to try and do throughout this conversation is try and draw on some of the key takeaways that people who are also maybe football coaches or coaches of other sports can kind of take away from what you've, you know, what 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 you kind of maybe discussing here and how to apply it in different contexts. But if we come back to that first piece there around laying the foundations in terms of technical work and technical uh, technical proficiency, I guess, you know, would it be fair to say that in tennis is probably a lot more, uh, it's a lot more of a priority within tennis than maybe it is in some other sports because it is such an individualised thing and you're, you know, you're using an apparatus to kind of strike something, if that makes sense? Yeah, so like I know, um, so like the tennis can be quite a difficult sport to pick up for people, um, but if you're kind of creative and kind of innovative as a coach you can kind of design the sessions to make it easier for the people to play um and like kind of play so it looks like the kind of real game so like one of the things that they did well in tennis was they brought in like balls like bigger balls for younger kids but then the worst thing they did for that was they prescribed ages for so like this is the ball for under eights this is the ball for under nines this is the ball for under tens so then like just because a kid was nine, he had to use this ball, whereas he would have been better suited with the bigger ball to help him learn. Um, so like I think with the tennis and like why there's a big focus on the technique is because like the value, like the from the say if we were looking at the skill acquisition theory, the one that they're looking at is the motor process or information processing where they're kind of building um, motor memory, building technique. Um, whereas if you looked at it from a ecological dynamics perspective, like what you'd be doing is even with beginners players, you'd be setting up conditions. So like the goal, I suppose, with beginners is to help them explore. So um, they're with their say coordination or their technique, they're like learning different ways to coordinate their actions to hit the ball. And then with the with their kind of decision making, intentions, perceptions, they're learning which ones are which are the like intent which are which is what is the information they need to look for to be able to achieve their intended task out, outcome so like if you're looking at coaching beginners from like say the ecological perspective that's what you're trying to do you're trying to like i suppose use a kind of guided discovery approach where you're designing tasks to allow them explore different movements allow them learn how to kind of couple their movement to the information and then as they get better like their actions will improve and their kind of sensitivity to the information will improve. So that's kind of what developing skill looks like from an ecological dynamics perspective, whereas from the information processing, it's um, developing, say, the perfect technique. I think, you know, you're spot on. I think what, what one of the key things that obviously becomes a big challenge here is, you know, you mentioned there about the the idea of guided discovery, but I think with guided discovery also, um, 
in many ways leaves the coach quite quite vulnerable in not recognizing exactly where it's going to go and i think that that's probably where one of the biggest challenges it, it, it occurs obviously with this sort of with this sort of debate in that when you go down the technical aspect and you're really trying to develop that technique 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 you know without really taking into taking into consideration the actual context in which it should be applied in and based on the variables that might impact on it we can easily miss the fact that actually the technique might be a technique that could be used but actually without the context there's no it, it essentially loses any relevance but it what it does do it does give the coach an element of control and direction of where they're taking things if you get what i mean yeah no i i definitely get what you mean so like i suppose when i first started like i started coaching very young and i hadn't got I have I hadn't participated in that much like say formal coaching as a junior I didn't get much one-on-one -on -one coaching um so like what I like everyone like especially if they're starting out with some something new wants to have some element of control and like I found it the same when I even when I started PE teaching like you like the first thing you need is kind of control but what we kind of need to I suppose what I've moved away from is like thinking that I am this kind of like person with all the knowledge that I have to give to the player and that they need to perform the skill in this in their own unique or in their in this way for it to be correct. Whereas like now the way I look at it is that like my job is to guide them towards their own individual technique because everyone's has their own different action capabilities. Everyone's tall some people are taller, some people are smaller, some people are faster, some people are slower. So there's no say one perfect technique if you look at tennis the top 10 tennis players in the world if you all of them their forehands have some things that are the same but a lot of it is different uh same with uh, same with golf i've seen like say graphics of people like all the pro swings where they've done the like kind of color where they have like the color on the backswing and where, where it goes and like everyone's is different so then when we're trying to get them to fit into this perfect technique it's actually counterproductive and um like i it is there have been studies like there was one by one of the, the most famous one is by this russian scientist called nikolai bernstein you've probably heard of it so what what it was was they had there he was he used to study um goldsmiths uh so like he was looking at them hammering the nail and even in a, in the simple task like hammering the nail like this swing trajectory was different but they all hit the nail like every swing the trajectory differed slightly but the task outcome was consistent so he hit the nail so it's the same with like there i've heard this from um if any of the listeners want to try this what they can do is um i heard this from ian renshaw so if you get a piece of paper draw two dots 10 centimeters apart and just try connect the two dots in kind of one motion try to do it 10 times and you'll see that like you won't be able to repeat the same movement so like it'll be slightly different every time so if you can't even repeat something simple like that how can you repeat a tennis forehand when the ball is coming you know, different you know what different ways each time absolutely brilliant example of, of, of um the whole idea you know of, of, of you know whether there is truly any repetition in anything that we do because the variables will be slightly different, you know, whether that's, you know, me and you could be literally five yards away playing that pass to each other, but actually every single time I receive it or you receive it, the pace might be slightly different. 
therefore will have a different impact on it. And that's just a very, very, very basic example. But I'm really curious, Phil, where did that thinking first come for you? Where did you first start? Because, you know, you said early on, young coach, you know, you, you wanted to have a bit of control. Where did you start to think, oh, actually, maybe all this control isn't such a good thing? Um, I suppose, like, because when I was... When I was kind of that young coach, I was coaching myself as well, kind of. So I was kind of designing practices for myself. And like I was looking at, I was looking at YouTube videos of this is how Federer hits his forehand, this is how whatever hits his shot. And then I was trying to do it myself. And like it could, you could get it maybe, like you could, if you froze the camera maybe every so often, it might look slightly like it, but. There was, I obviously, I'm not, I can't hit my forehand like Federer. That's why I'm doing this podcast and not playing on the professional tour. Um, but um, it kind of came from that. And then like when I first started it with the constraints set approach, I was trying to do, I heard of constraints and I was doing things like making, like I used to have like one of the games that I did a lot was I used to tie like this rope over the net a bit higher. And I had to hit every ball over that and things like that and like things like that are, were just they were kind of over constraining me so I kind of like made a few kind of I was making mistakes at first with myself so it wasn't too bad and then um even with like even with my first few like say P classes my first year like I was making mistakes I was kind of trying to be all like really controlling in some of them and gonna try but then like once I kind of got comfortable like accepting that I have to lose some control. I actually got more control. Like the players actually like bought it. Um, the players enjoyed it more, so they were more engaged. Like they were, you're because you're going to set it. You're able to set up the tasks to kind of challenge them that they're kind of engaged and they kind of like if I you've been a soccer coach for long enough that when you're like the first thing that I remember when I I played soccer for a while when I was younger and like the first thing we used to ask the coaches when are we playing the match so then when you're kind of doing different like kind of condition games and stuff like that during the session I, I just find that the players enjoy it so much more and that it's more like as like we kind of talked about earlier like they're like what we're trying to do is encourage them to explore different solutions explore kind of different like what information to kind of look out first and the best way to do that is through the games and kind of that the best thing about it is that the players enjoy it more too, from my experience. Just, just on that, and obviously, you know, you know, what does that look like for you in tennis? Because I've got an idea of what it would look like for me in a game of football. Well, how would that look for you in a, in a game of tennis? How would I kind of set up the games, is it? Yeah, so um, usually, like, the person that I did the most work with was kind of my younger sister. So I used to play with her a lot. And, like, what we kind of, the way I used to do it was, I used to kind of, I used to try watch her matches as much as I could. I wasn't able to watch all of them, but I used to try watch her play or even like I'd kind of set up or I'd play, we'd play a match at the start and she'd be playing against me and I'd be kind of looking out for things that maybe were kind of letting her down or that she needed to work on a bit. And then what what we do is so a lot of the time, like one of the kind of mistakes with the kind of say constraint-led approach, which is the way that we kind of apply the ecological dynamics idea, is that um, we think that, or like one of the kind of common misconceptions is that it has to be like really game-like. So 
what I kind of did, what, what I do is I'd scale down the kind of difficulty of the task to a level that was kind of appropriate for her while keeping the key information present. So like opponents, ball flight, things like that are really important information for tennis. So like, and then I'd make sure all of those are present and then I'd kind of be, so like one of the things that we worked a lot on was kind of getting to the net and volleying. So what I used to do was I'd kind of start myself in a disadvantaged position. I kind of hit a ball in to start the point and she'd kind of be coming into the net and it kind of varied a feed every time. So kind of like a repetition with a repetition approach. So like sometimes I'd hit the feed a bit higher, it's shorter, bit like to the side, to her forehand, backhand. And like even with her, like she was one of the, she's one of the best, she was one of the best players in Ireland for her age. She was number, she was in the top three um so like she was quite she's quite good so like even with her i was using the kind of bigger balls that the eight-year-olds would use or the nine-year-olds would use um just to slow down the game at first to kind of give her chances to be successful and then once she kind of was getting successful at it getting more comfortable at it, i kind of upped the kind of difficulty up the kind of levels of representativeness like to a level that she was com- comfortable performing at and then kind of gradually work it down until she was kind of getting comfortable to do it in a game. You know, just just on that then, what would that interaction be like between you and her in terms of the actual interventions themselves? Because obviously a large part of what you're talking about is just, you know, really facilitating the environment, facilitating the practice in a way where it's going to give her, I guess, a wide range of experiences. But how was you ensuring, um, if at all, in any way, that she was really processing these things and having real awareness of them. Yeah, so I suppose actually, like one of the things I should have said at the other at the start of like the last piece was that like so a lot of the time I'd ask her herself what she felt that she needed to work on and like what parts of her game, like say if she played a tournament, what like what did she need to do better? Like if she did this better, would it help her in a match? And then like we kind of work together so like i'd ask her first and then i kind of give my opinion and then we kind of figure out where we kind of go from there then during the task so um like it's kind of i suppose if we we're talking kind of with skill acquisition terms it's called like representative co-design so like i'm kind of getting her opinions on like i'd ask her stuff like how is does this feel like the problem you're facing in the game if she says no how could i how could we make it more like this problem so she could tell me that oh it's actually when um the player is starting further back behind the baseline so then i kind of adjust my starting position so i'd be back further and then like one of the ways like it you can't really do this straight away i suppose but once you kind of build it up with the player i kind of ask her like i suppose out of 10 how did that feel like how much did that feel like the problem how much and then like she'd be kind of giving me feedback and then we'd be kind of coming up with different ways to design the games like that's not something you can kind of do straight away it's kind of something you have to build up towards and even like if if a coach is listening to this and they want to kind of start out with it like a nice way to do it is just give them options so like i can either start here or here where would it feel more like the problem and then kind of you're giving them some autonomy and you're giving like you're starting off the process of um, being able to do the co-design but you're just kind of because the player mightn't be ready for it you're kind of just building them up has to be a process before then so I guess what needs to happen and 
at what point do we then say, yes, we can now start doing this? Because there's going to be a lot of coaches listening to this, right? And my opinion, my, my opinion is this, that you, you really can't get to that point unless you've understood enough about the variables that could potentially exist and the potential outcomes that could exist. Not to say that these are set in stone and definitive, but you have enough understanding of the, the possible outcomes, not all of them, be able to be able to kind of construct and deconstruct certain situations for the athlete to go through, if that makes sense. Yeah, so like I suppose, when I like a lot of the say, coaches that might be listening, like I, I imagine a lot of them would be very experienced coaches. It's just they might be very familiar with the skill acquisition research. So like what they have, I suppose, is they have kind of like a rich, not like they've been involved in the game for so long that they've developed their own kind of rich knowledge of kind of the game. And I suppose that's called the knowledge of the game or knowledge about the game. So that's the knowledge about the game. So they kind of know the difference, say, like they'd be very familiar with the kind of principles of play, things like that. Um, what I suppose um, they need to do then is like they need to get used to, I suppose, being able to like use the knowledge that they have about the game to design games that will help the players kind of develop, like become skillful in the game. So, like, if some of those coaches listening, like, I I think they would be very knowledgeable coaches and that, like, once they have a grasp of some of the kind of basic kind of principles of the, the theory that they'd be able to do it, that they'd get comfortable doing it kind of quite quickly once they kind of have an understanding of the principles. I think you're spot on. And it's, it's something I always say, you know, you know, in my time, both as a coach and and more recently working as a coach developer, I always say to coach, the first thing, of really, if you really want to get this coaching thing, especially in the sport of football, the first thing you need to do is not worry about practice design, not worry about anything else, but really get into grips of those principles. Because if you understand the principles, um, you can have your own perception of them, but those principles don't change. Um, and regardless of the game that you you, you know you're, you're you're coaching, you know tennis will have its principles, football will have its principles, and every other sport will have its own principles. But without un- having un- un- a real strong underpinning of those things, you can't really design effective practices. You can't really understand where the game may or may not go next, or where the athlete maybe needs to experience that they haven't experienced yet. If that makes sense, I mean, w- would you agree with that? Yeah, no, definitely. So like. Um, I suppose there's kind of two sets of principles they need to know. So like they need to know the principles of the sport, and then they know they, then after that they need to kind of know the principles of practice design. So um, I imagine most coaches, like soccer coaches, especially like the ex- more experienced ones, would have a good knowledge of the principles of football or soccer. And then it's just once they have a grasp of the principles of practice design, then that they can kind of design really kind of really good games to develop to develop the player's knowledge like in the game no i think you're spot on so i guess you know the qu- the question then comes is what what are some of those key principles that you think that the players just start to understand about the practice design because you're talking about collaborative co-design in terms of representative practice you're talking about um really <laughs> in some ways uh educating the athletes on the processes that the coaches go through to design the sessions 
um, so that they can better understand maybe why certain factors and considerations have been made or why certain constraints or um, restrictions are, are, are applied within the practices. What would you say are some of the key things and, and, and how soon do you think that process should begin? Because for me, I think it should be from the get go, right? We're doing this, this, this. Um, and this is the reason why. This is what I'm hoping to get and have it really be very open, honest and almost vulnerable to an extent with the players or the athletes that. These are the reasons why I'm doing this and be open to the critique and challenge that actually I don't think that works either. Yeah, no, definitely. So like for our coaches, it's kind of really important to understand the why behind the practice design. So like I suppose one of the biggest mistakes I see coaches make is like they might see some video on YouTube, like especially uh like say tennis there's lots of videos of pro players practicing i know it's the same for soccer because i see them you'd see like pep guardiola's training sessions or um arteta's or whoever's kind of the co whoever's the kind of like i suppose most popular coach at the moment and then the coaches would just look at the game be like okay i'll do this with my under eights or under tens whatever group they have and just try kind of reproduce the game where when they don't really understand why the coaches are doing it. So like when you understand the, I suppose, when you have the principles of practice design. So like when I'm talking about the principles of practice design, it they kind of come from um nonlinear pedagogy. So um, there's lots of terms being thrown around here. And I it's kind of I can see why some coaches would kind of be turned off to some of the skill acquisition stuff, because it's um some of this terminology and stuff can be quite confusing, but I think we can kind of simplify it a lot. So like with the nonlinear pedagogy, there's kind of five key principles. Like the first one that I think if coaches start with it, it's probably the best one to start with is representative learning design. So making your practices kind of look and feel as much like the game as you can or like the appropriate level of the game. So like sometimes like people can think about it like a scale. So like one, would be like very unopposed um, practice that like you might be even doing individual practice and 10 might be the full on game. And often like the full on game is to like players don't get enough chances to work on kind of certain skills. So like one of the ones like a tennis example, like if a player wanted to work on overhead smashes, you might get one a match, maybe two. So like just playing the game won't help that. So what we do then is we kind of make Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like slices of the game, I suppose, is a nice way to put it. So, like, if you you kind of keep you kind of design a game that will encourage more smashes or overheads to be hit, um, and then you kind of scale down the level of representativeness a small bit. It could usually, I suppose, you'd want to be maybe between three and seven as much as you can. Sometimes you might be down one and two, and like once you can kind of justify the why, that's okay. And then if you're above that, you can justify the why. That's perfect. But kind of just being able to justify why you're kind of along that scale is kind of a good starting point for coaches. So like creating slices of the game to work on and like kind of once you have the key information from the game present. I, I love the way that you put it there in terms of slices of the game because, you know, it's very much aligned with, I guess, the way I look at designing practices and it's almost within that slice if you take it as a slice you know there's actually so much detail the detail is so minute but there's so much of it that actually that's what makes the biggest difference around the actual context of the practice you know um you know if i'm looking at a game of football as an example you know let's 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 explore it so you know initially you might just get a topic everyone has a i don't know a topic on finishing as an example I could ask a hundred different coaches, or you brought back last ten coaches to give me a topic on finishing, or fin- uh, sorry, give me a session on finishing, and all of theirs would look very different because in their minds already they have a perception of what that looks like for them. There's an immediate image, whether they attach it to something that they've been through, whether they attach it to their, maybe their favourite finish that they've seen, maybe a, a certain individual do, or there's an immediate kind of thought that goes in their mind, and nine times out of ten that's probably where the practice stems from but actually when you break it down further and this is what i encourage coaches to then do is say right okay so it is finishing but the finishing that you're thinking of where does that take place is it finishing from inside the six yard box is it finishing from inside the 18 yard box is it finishing from outside the 18 yard box because all of a sudden now if we add that extra piece on to right let's work on finishing today but it's finishing in in or out if that if that makes sense all of a sudden now those 10 practices look very different but actually there's probably a lot more consistencies in terms of what they could end up looking like because now we're being very specific about that and i think the more specific we get with our practice design the more we realize actually there's only so many things that could exist that actually look real does that if that makes sense yeah and i suppose like Another thing you'd add in then with the, I, I'll get into the soccer coaching as well, because I suppose I do a bit of P teaching, so I should be okay. Um, is that like when you're finishing, like a lot of, is there's, when you're in the box, there's going to, there's usually someone right on you or there's someone next to you. So there's going to be a bit of pressure. There's time pressure to get away the shot. There's um, like, what about the, what about like, are you working on, like say you can add it in things like pressure. So like, are you, are you going to like keep on the pressure? So it kind of, you get them used to feeling the pressure of having to take the shot in the 90th minute, scores a draw, 
um, to win the game. So things like that, can you add in you know, like different um, things like pressure? Can you add in like how are they finishing? Are they finishing their right foot every time? Are they like able to finish on both feet with their head? Um, are they able to finish like with their, are they able to, like, are they starting in different positions? Where's the ball coming from? Is it coming from a kind of cutback? Is it coming from a cross in? Is it coming from a pass? So like using and the next principle that I suppose would be useful then once they kind of get to representation or represent representative learning design is like repetition without repetition. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to you're not trying to repeat the process of repeating the movement. You're trying to repeat the process of solving the problem. So with the finishing example, the problem is getting the ball in the net past the keeper when they're with the defenders. So like you're kind of using you're kind of trying to create different versions of that problem for the player to solve um, that don't look the same every time. So they get used to adapting their movements. 100%. I think one really key piece on that is uh, over time, when I first started coaching, similar to yourself, I wanted that control. It was very much technical, technical, technical. I'm the coach. You say, you do what I say sort of thing. Um, obviously, as times evolved, I've moved very, very much far away from that, and it's very much about it is a guided exploration environment. It is a, um, a, a, a developing a sense of self awareness environment. It is very much a collaborative um, discussion around everything that's happening in the environment. So to make sure that they're they're attuned to the same variables that maybe I've identified, I'm in tune with maybe some of the feelings, thoughts, and emotions that they're getting from the variables of the environment. If that if if that makes sense, and what it's led me to now is obviously, I mean, historically, especially in football, technical information, technical detail is is such a massive thing. Um, and it's now led me to this point where actually, no, it's it's still key for me. But actually, what I look at is objective technical information versus subjective technical information. Um, and you you made reference to it earlier, and it, it just made me think about some some of the moments I've had in that players up. You know they've got different needs some are taller smaller shorter wider quicker faster slower whatever you want to call it whatever the differences are between them but actually every single one of these differences is going to have a have an impact on that technical outcome or rather the technical process to achieve the outcome and then i then i give you an example of this you know if, if in this case pep guardiola they've just paid however much they've paid for harland if he scores a goal in every single game, but it just comes off his knee and bounces into the goal, does anyone actually care? And I think I think you'd be you'd be very you know you'd be stuck in terms of trying to find someone that would actually care. And if they did, then it's why does it matter if they're getting the outcome achieved and they're they're, they're provided that the technique that they're using isn't stopping them from achieving the outcome, it shouldn't really be an issue. So can we now focus on the objective pieces as an example of that might be, right, he's using his knees to score the goal, but actually he's hitting the right part of the ball every time. So can we focus on that? He's actually hitting the right part of the ball every time. Yes, there might be some benefits and you know pros and cons of using different different surfaces and whatnot, but if he's found a way that works for him and it is working consistently, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah, so like he's, I suppose like a nice distinction is kind of looking at the difference between like technique and skill. So like technique is kind of repeating a movement 
where his skill is kind of like applying a movement in a context. So like he's Haaland is one of the most skillful finishers in the world, probably the most at the moment. And like some of his goals don't look the most pretty. Some of them look really good then. So like what but what he's really good at is he's good at getting the consistent outcome of get putting the ball in the net. And like some games I've seen, like he had nine touches in a match, but he ends up with a goal and an assist or something like that. Perfect. <laughs> but but, no, but it, it, it really does come down to that. It's, just, it's not how many opportunities you get, it's how successful you are within the opportunities that you're given, if that makes sense. And I think I think that's where maybe sometimes coaching can, can be wrong because we, we talk all the time about repetitions, 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 even in the whole concept of repetition without repetition. But how much effort is going into actually understanding and unpacking what's going on within those contexts, within those repetitions? Do the players understand enough about the variables that are existing within those things? Or are we doing what a lot of coaches maybe do and just facilitate practice, encourage lots of repetitions of facilitating practice and not actually do, you know, get to the point of interventions and actually correction and praise and reinforcements and, you know, critique around anything that's actually taking place, if that makes sense. Yeah, and like, I suppose just because you've brought up Hallen now, it's kind of, what like I saw an article during the week and there was actually some, um, there was a research kind of done on his upbringing and how it kind of influenced him. So like up until he was, I think, four, I think at under 10s, they only had one session a week. And the group started with 40 kids and the focus on was keeping the group of kids in sport as long as they could in this football. And the first kid didn't drop out till, I think, under 15s. Hallen stayed with that club till he was 16, where, like, I think at under 14, they were allowed to choose whether they kind of specialised or if they only stayed for the participation. So, like, at 14, I think he was able to move up to two or three sessions a week. But they kept the club open so the kids could go in and play at times outside of training. And then up until 16, he stayed with that club. And I think I saw out of the 40 kids, I think 10 of them play ended up playing professional football. And like when you look at the academies that are taking in the five-year-olds and they have to train five times a week, you're kind of like... It's crazy. I mean, I think, I think the key thing is obviously though that they're getting the balance. There's no pressure on them to be in the environment constantly. And I think that is always going to be that debate around early, early specialization or against it, right? Whether it is actually impactful or not. And what, you know, do the pros really outweigh the cons? Are we take are, are we are we turning them into professional athletes from such a young age, um, shaping them in a way where actually knowing that there's limited successful opportunities for them? Are we setting them up for failure anyway? Yeah, so like I think is there like is it only less than is it like zero point five percent of academy players end up playing in the Premier League? Uh that's zero point five from well, the ones that start in at under nines. Yeah. From under nines through you know, to the likelihood of an under nine that's in an academy getting through to professional player, yeah, zero point five. Obviously, I think as you go up the age groups. That might be it might be very different, but that that's that's the common stat that's thrown around, yeah. I did see one that like in um I think they did a study in Germany that the later the player made their debut for the national team, so underage team, so like if you didn't make your debut till under nineteen or something, you were more likely to actually play with the seniors. So if you made your debut with the under thirteen team, you were less likely to play with the seniors than the under nineteens. Well, I mean, I, I spot on. I mean, I say to parents all the time that. You know that I've worked with in the past, and I said to them, "Look, 
it's not the end of the world if your kid isn't in, in the in, in an academy or in in, in a quote unquote elite environment at six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. But actually, what you really want to be paying attention to is if a club comes calling at fifteen, sixteen. If a club yeah. comes calling at fifteen, sixteen, they're looking at your kid and thinking, "Oh, this kid's got an opportunity now. This kid, he, we could we could get him into the under 18s Now we've given him two years at under fifteen, two years at you know two years at under eighteen. There's a good chance here that he could become a pro. He might not even become a pro at that club. But I say, you know, I always say, I always say to parents, the later they get in in terms of that pathway, the more likely it is they're probably going to have some success because as they get older, the club it has it has to take into consideration right what's the next step. It's not like getting, you know, five hundred under sevens coming in to do a trial to get into the under nines. That the under nines might not be the same group of players in the under 10s so there's there's so many changes that can take place but obviously there's less and less of those changes as you go up the ladder so i think you're spot on man you know in terms of that, that germany that you know if they're saying that you're you know you know you're more likely to make it as a professional once you make it if you don't make your debut before 19 and i think i think there's a lot there's a lot of truth to that but i think the other challenge is obviously with within england in particular is we don't typically see our players go abroad. Obviously, we've seen a bit more of a trend of that now, but we don't really see our players go abroad because, you know, I, well, I don't really know why, to be honest, but other countries, players from other countries are willing to leave their home countries, which means there's more opportunities for the younger players to progress and get experience at maybe quote-unquote higher levels, if that makes sense. So when they, when they then leave those leagues, they, you know, they're almost better prepared to play wherever else they're going to play. Yeah, so I suppose like in different environment, like what you can learn in a different environments then is like would be beneficial when they do come back. So like I know there there are a lot of younger Premier League players going abroad now on loan deals, and when they come back, it's that they're kind of are learning different. Like I suppose like each country has different, I suppose different cultural constraints. So like in England, I suppose the game would be quite intense. Um, there'd be more challenges going in. There'd be in a more physical whereas I suppose the Spanish culture would be more in a technique driven where they're kind of passing a lot more and stuff like that so the environment that the player does grow up in will kind of shape how they develop quite a lot so like I suppose one of the best examples that most of the listeners on the would know would be like the Brazilian footballers growing up playing street football playing futsal and they developed these unbelievable skills and they're learning through games and they develop into some of the most skillful players in the world. But that's, I suppose, an example of how our cultural constraint would kind of shape the development. 100%. And even, even kind of, if you, if you delve a little bit deeper into it, there's obviously the, the socioeconomic status of Brazil is obviously very different to what it is here in the UK. And obviously, you know, for a lot of the players in, that, in, in Brazil, possibly, they genuinely have a situation where this is kind of a make it or break it for their lives which we might not necessarily have the same constraints over here in terms of being in England or the UK in particular. So it's almost like there's that mindset piece that I don't think you can really coach. It's what the environment brings out of you, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose the best we can do is hope to kind of design our environments to kind of develop those skills. So like if you're designing games where they have to I suppose, develop that mindset from a young age, it might benefit them. But obviously, it's you can't replicate the pressures of 
being like in a poverty in poverty needing to uh, succeed at the sport to get out of it but you can kind of I suppose set up scenarios that would help kind of develop that resilience a bit anyway yeah no I think I think you're spot on I think you know there's so many different ways you can look at it but I want I want to come back to this skill acquisition piece because you know yeah. that, like, in regards to that then coaches are listening to this you're right with something you you know something you spot on you said earlier is it can be off-putting when when you cut when you go down these you know these paths sometimes because a lot of the a lot of the language is not really if you're like user friendly it's quite it's quite difficult to kind of decipher it around what does this actually mean what does it look like in practice how is that different to this and there's so many terms thrown around that I think at at times we do we do need to kind of simplify things um, for people that maybe haven't come across these terms through academia if if that makes sense but I guess for you what would be your kind of go-to kind of advice for coaches maybe haven't yet considered you know this this kind of ecological dynamic approach or um, the whole the whole idea around skill acquisition or maybe those who are maybe just starting to tread um, across the thought of using it and, and and maybe not too sure how to start to implement it within their environments yeah so like I suppose with the skill acquisition and like the terminology like I get the term like say I I love reading this stuff and I I I think you kind of enjoy it as well a bit so like I suppose what like I feel kind of I feel I don't feel bad but like for the say coaches a lot of them are they volunteer coaches they coach once a week or they coach a few times a week they don't have time to be reading this research and breaking it down and kind of learning how to apply it so I suppose like the main thing is coach education coach or courses and like coach developers need to do like need to be able to give the those coaches kind of ways into the research and kind of simplify it for them so um how uh, with regards getting started in it i suppose like the biggest thing you need to do is like just move away from looking at developing um like the perfect skills so like kind of let go of that and especially like if you're working with beginners players what you're trying to do is you're trying to set up games and drills or not well like more tasks um that will guide the players towards kind of information uh, let them explore loads of different types of movements to develop their like capacity to be able to adapt their movements so like I would if I was a coach if I was kind of say going to start with a coach in the morning like the best thing like what I try I try to be there for them so like I'd kind of let like with the coaching a lot of it is you are trying to explore yourself at first so like the whole say ecological dynamics approach is based on players being able to adapt giving players room to explore and coaches need to do the same so like they need to design tasks see how they work maybe if you see some like good example of maybe a soccer game that we could give coaches and then maybe like they like what you need to be able to do is like i've spent hours or well not hours but i've spent lots of time say designing games myself for them to just not go anyway like i thought they would go and you're probably the same you go into a session you're like this is going to be perfect and then it just it's nearly a disaster but 
you get used to kind of being able to adjust little things in the games. Like you can kind of figure out what's not working, what's working here, how can I adjust this to make it work? And you get like uh, with practice and with exploration, you get quite good at it yourself. So for some coaches, it can be quite a big jump to go from having all this control to having to kind of letting it go. But maybe like what they can do is just maybe try kind of try let some go for parts of the session and then see like see like all the like all I can I suppose like advise is kind of design some games see how the players interact with them give it a, like give it a few weeks don't just kind of do it once and and like because I've designed even still I have some sessions where I'm like whoa that wasn't that wasn't perfect or the game didn't work out like I was supposed to but I just kind of adapt the constraints or adapt the kind of conditions and then it kind of works out a bit better something really important that you know it's just really come at me what, what you're saying i think the really key part about making sure that we don't just try it once and stop is because actually this is new for the players as well and that's part of the reason why it may or may not work and coming back to the piece we talked about earlier about having that co-design aspect of it and that collaborative piece around actually helping the athlete or the player understand why we're doing things in this way because it, it just made me think of a, 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 a conversation the other day actually um, where I was working with a group of players and in this particular environment we don't really we don't do any unopposed work absolutely zero unopposed work um, and I asked them a, I asked I asked the players a question and I said you know if, if there was anything that you could change about what we do in training what would it be uh, and one of the players actually said, well, actually, it would probably be really good if we can maybe practice some of this stuff. Like, you know, if, if as an example, the player said, you know, passing over longer distances. Um, I said, OK, so what would that look like to you if we were to practice passing over long distances? And the player said, well, it could be that, you know, maybe two of us are 20 yards, 15 yards apart and we're just, you know, just playing passes. I said, OK, but I've got a question for you, though if you did that in a game and you were playing that long pass, what would that look like? And kind of just left it there as, as you know, just plant a seed. And she goes, uh, and then the player says, yeah, but there would be players, there would be other players obviously on the pitch, but, um, but we need to be able to practice that. I said, yeah, but is it really practicing that if the problem that you're facing in a game isn't the problem that you're actually training on? Um, so then I guess by the end of that conversation, we eventually got to a point where we said, OK, well, let's meet on it. Let's, you know, it might be a middle ground here. We might have uh, we might have opposition here. And maybe the opposition isn't fully opposed. Just so that there's some con contextual interaction around, right, this is what it this is what the, this is what the situation is. Um, the player might not be able to tackle you. Actually, the player is there. So that is going to, by nature, affect and impact on your technique to apply that long pass that you want to practice on. So. Um, but again, coming back to that collaborative piece, I think it's really important. And I think it for coaches to understand that actually the sooner we let go, the more we've got at our, depo uh, at our disposal. Yeah, so like I think you've kind of like it made a really, really good point there. So like I suppose like say all this skill acquisition practice design stuff is kind of like it's kind of I suppose it is nearly useless if you don't have the coaching skills to kind of work with the players. So like one a nice thing you said there was like 
you kind of you discuss with the player so like one thing i'd say is kind of like it's important to meet the players where they're at so like if if a player is all he has ever done is unopposed practice and for the majority of the session and then play a 10 minute match at the end and then suddenly you come in and you're like no we're doing just games the whole time they'll be like what are we doing so you need to kind of meet them where they're at and kind of build a relationship with them build a trust and then kind of move more towards the way you want it done but bring them with you rather than just kind of telling them this is what we're doing now um and they like they they might some of them might like it some of them mightn't whereas if you kind of bring them along with you you have kind of more likelihood of success but it's something you said then i think you know i want to get to this does it matter if they like it if they can recognize it's helping them um i suppose like one of the big things that they don't necessarily have to like it and but I think it's more beneficial if they do. And if, well, I, 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 yeah. right? but I think the, the, the underlying question really is, is do they not like it because it's something that's new to them? Or do they not like it because it's actually. It's they find it ineffective, if that makes sense, because, you know, in, in many cases, so I'll give you an example when I put on a practice for a player. Um, one of the or, or common questions I often ask is, right, in the tasks that I'm asking you to perform, um, A, I want you to identify and let me know if you're finding this uncomfortable. But what I really want you to pay attention to is that discomfort or un, you know, that, that uncomfortable feeling coming from this being new or this feeling that it's not right for you. And really pay attention to that. And as soon as I drop that in there, they're really having to think about it. Give me give me real rationale and justification as to why you feel uncomfortable here. Is it just because it's new or because it genuinely just does not feel right for you as an individual? And if that's the case, that's fine. But this comes back to me having enough knowledge about the game to understand how, you know, some of the other ways to, you know, potentially skin that cat, if you like. Yeah, so it was like one of the one of the big differences between, say, like the approach that we take and the more I suppose kind of drill based, repetition based, is that our practices would look a lot messier. So there's more mistakes. So then, like, those players might come from an environment where if they make a mistake in training, it's bad. Whereas we kind of want mistakes to be made because it kind of shows that the players are being challenged. So, like, what we really kind of need to work on is getting the players kind of being comfortable being uncomfortable. So, like, they need to be comfortable to try stuff in practice, to mess up, to like discover stuff rather than just trying to be perfect all the time. So I think that's one reason that at the start players might not kind of go with the approach. And then um, I suppose with the, like sometimes I think like say players mightn't like it because it's like say it might be a small bit too challenging for them. Or so like what we might have to do is scale it down a small bit or sometimes they just might, might like it because it's new, like you said. and I think once they kind of start to see the improvements over the, uh, like, say, the one thing with the, I suppose, the approach we take is that, like, we're looking at learning rather than performance. So, like, learning, 
isn't getting everything right and learning can take a bit longer whereas so like you mightn't see the benefits for two or three sessions or you might sometimes you might even see them for three or four and then suddenly it just clicks yeah. and that learning is just a lot more kind of pronounced so it's kind of getting players used to that i think i think you're spot on. i think i think the key thing for me you know before we before we look to round up is the learning part for me is are the players able to self-diagnose are they able to self-reflect and be more self-aware around where maybe things have gone well, where things have maybe broken down, but more importantly, the reason why these things have maybe gone well or broken down. That's not to say that they're going to be able to correct it immediately, but they have they are very attuned to the fact that this is the reason why this happened, or this was a this was a variable that in that you know that had a direct impact on my ability to do X. And if they're able to articulate that in one way, shape or form, whether that is verbally or actually say, right, actually when this happened here through visual demonstration or wh whatever that might be, um, for me, that that's taking me closer to where I need to go to. I don't necessarily need to, uh, feel the need to see them actually have to perform the outcome all the time for me to see that there's been a level of success here, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. So like, I suppose, like what we see as players become more skillful is that they kind of get more aware of like their change reaction capability so that like, they might realize oh it's the 85th minute of the match i'm kind of cramping a bit maybe i shouldn't hit a 90 yard pass i should kind of play a safer pass and they kind of become more aware of what like matching their capabilities to the problems so like as players become more skillful like they will i suppose become more aware of what maybe is going wrong or what they need to be doing and like they can just do it raw like they kind of show it rather than kind of verbalizing it so like a lot of the time in coaching we don't like you might be looking for verbal responses you're kind of looking for players to more show you that they know like when they're in the problem then i think but i think also that for a lot of coaches hearing the player be able to tell you where it's gone wrong or whatnot um again comes back to that control piece it's making sure that the player tells you what you want to hear but actually i think what it is is more important we need to flip the script and say actually it's not about what i want to hear it's about what you're what you're able to tell me um but you know i'm, I'm sure we can kind of come back and forth and you know kind of unpack this for, for days and days because it's such a fascinating topic um but i'm conscious of time um so phil on that note is there anywhere people can get in touch with you? I know you're quite active on Twitter. Um, if they wanted to kind of maybe pick up on you on some of the points that we made in this conversation or maybe find a little bit more about your thoughts and ideas I around the whole. Like I I'm very happy to engage with people if they send me a message on Twitter or if they kind of comment under one of my posts or anything like that. Um I if like if you're interested in some of the ideas, I also kind of have a newsletter I send out every week. Um, I usually kind of try have a kind of it's usually a kind of summary of different so like I usually have a research article a podcast episode a tweet a quote and a resource that I share with coaches for them to kind of like explore themselves so like I'd give kind of my initial thoughts on it and then kind of give to I suppose a platform to explore that so like if some of the research or if some of the kind of ideas seem a bit kind of I suppose a bit daunting it might be a nice place for coaches to start so like that's kind of i suppose to my goal of the twitter page was to kind of help coaches to understand some of the skill acquisition stuff a bit more because 
I do realize that it can be quite challenging and time consuming and not everyone is happy to spend hour, an hour every day reading a paper or kind of dissecting ideas. So um, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Um, and I, like I'm kind of active most of the time. So like I'm active every day at the moment. So I should see it if you kind of shoot me a message if you, I'm more than happy to respond. Sorry? Just confirm what your Twitter handle is there. Oh, sorry. It's uh, Mr. Um, underscore Tennis Coach. So Mr. Mr. Underscore Tennis Underscore Coach. Sorry. And I think if you look up Philip O'Callaghan, it might come up. But yeah. that's my handle, Mr. Underscore Tennis Underscore Coach. There you have it, guys. Mr. Underscore Tennis Underscore Coach. Well, look, Phil, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, definitely keen on catching up on, on, on this on further, on further time. Um, but thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure there'll be some key bits that the listeners are going to pick up from here. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully um, it was worth all the hassle of getting the podcast going. So um, I like I was delighted to be on it. You've had some fantastic guests on that I've listened to. So hopefully I can make a small contribution. But um, I'd listen to, if there is a coach listening to end of this, maybe listen to the Keith Davids one before me or someone like that. But yeah, um, Nick Winkleman won. Nick Nick was brilliant on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But no, thank you again for your time, Phil. I really appreciate it, man. Um, guys, make sure you get in touch with Phil. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.